All right. Well, as Pastor Henry mentioned, we are continuing to going, going through the series on strengthening our grip. And this morning we're talking about strengthening our grip on trusting God. How many of you have children? Can you raise your hands this morning? How many of you at least have influence in a child's life? Maybe you're a teacher, an aunt or an uncle, grandparents, neighbor, anybody? All right. Well, okay, next question. How many of you were at least a child at one time? That should be everybody, right? <laughs> As a children's pastor and someone has, who has worked with children for over 10 years, I found that there is something sweet and yet very profound about a child. They have such an innocence, such complete trust in the people who they know God has placed in their lives to take care of them. And it reminds me a little bit of a story that I just recently read. Now, this is a children's story, and I know most of us here are way past the point of training wheels. However, I love the impact that this story had, just the gentle truth that it had. So bear with me as I tell you the story of little Hannah. It was a beautiful, sunny Saturday. Hannah and her brother Joey ate lunch quickly because their parents had promised to take them on a bike ride that afternoon. Hannah had been riding with her training wheels for a couple of days, and she was so excited to ride on a real bike ride like her big brother. Can anyone here remember the days when maybe your children lost their training wheels, or maybe even way back, not for some of you way back, but maybe even back to when you lost your training wheels? Anybody remember how exhilarating that was and how you kind of had to have that trust and that faith? Well, Hannah felt like such a big kid when she zoomed around on her bike with no training wheels. Finally, everyone was ready and Hannah's family started off on their ride. They rode around their neighborhood and were having a great time. Smiling and laughing, Hannah was doing a great job. She was following her dad and had no trouble pedaling her bike up the small hills that they rode on. She was having a blast. The family began to turn the corner and head for home. As soon as she was around the corner, Hannah used her brakes and then put her feet on the ground, stopping her bike as fast as she could. She looked in front of her and saw that she was at the top of a hill, a long hill that looked like it went on forever. Her eyes got huge and she began to feel very small. Hannah's mom, dad, and Joey kept riding and were halfway down the hill before her mom noticed that she wasn't with them anymore. Her mom pedaled back up the hill towards Hannah. What's wrong, Hannah? I'm not going down that hill. I think I want to walk my bike down. Hannah's eyes were filling up with tears and her hands started shaking a little bit. She was so scared. But Hannah, you know how to ride and you know how to use your brakes. You'll be fine. Hannah just sat on her bike and shook her head. There was no way she was going to go down that hill riding her bike. Hannah's dad rode back up the hill and joined Hannah and her mom. He saw the tears in Hannah's eyes and he knew that she was afraid. What's going on? He asked. That hill is too steep, Daddy. I, I don't want to go down it. But Hannah, you're doing so well on your bike. We're almost home. I know you can do it. Just use your brakes like I taught you. Tears started rolling down Hannah's face. What if she went too fast? What if she crashed because she couldn't brake and stop her bike? She felt like she was too scared to move. Hannah's mom got off her bike and came and stood next to Hannah. Hannah, we can do this. We wouldn't make you do something that you weren't ready to do, and we know you can do this. How about I stand next to you and keep my hand on the seat of your bike? I won't let you fall. Hannah's hands were still shaking and tears were still in her eyes and she was still scared. But she thought, I know my mom won't let me fall. 
She is bigger and stronger than me, and I know she doesn't want me to get hurt. Hannah's mom knelt beside Hannah and wiped away the tears on her cheeks. You know that I love you and that you can trust me, Hannah. How about we ride down to that tree and stop? She pointed to a tree a little ways away. Hannah looked at her mom and she looked at the tree. She was still scared, but she trusted her mom, and after a minute, Hannah nodded her head. Hannah's mom put her hand on the back of the seat. Hannah put her feet on the pedals and started down the hill. She wobbled a little as she pedaled, but after a few seconds, she was by the tree her mom had pointed to. She braked just like her dad had taught her and stopped right next to it. Hannah could hear her dad cheering from the top of the hill and Joey cheering from the bottom of the hill. She had done it. Hannah made it down the hill and even did part of it without her mom running beside her. A few minutes later, they were back home and they talked about their bike ride and how Hannah had made it down the hill. While Hannah was talking about how scared she had been, her dad said, Hannah, what happened today reminds me of how the Bible tells us we are supposed to trust and love Jesus. You had to trust your mom and you could do that because you love her. Even though you were afraid, you knew she wasn't going to let you get hurt and that she wouldn't make you do something you weren't ready to do. Jesus wants us to show him how much we love him by choosing to obey him even when we are afraid. Psalm 37, 23 through 24 says, If we believe in God, he will hold our hands so that we won't fall. Joshua 1, 9 says that we don't need to be afraid because God is with us wherever we go. He will help us do whatever he is asking us to do. Joey giggled and said, So it's kind of like Jesus is riding, running alongside us and holding the seat of our bikes as we ride along and live our lives. That's one way to think of it, Joey, said their mom. But it also means that when we are scared and don't want to do something we need to do, that we need to show Jesus we love him by trusting that he is there with us and doing what he wants us to do. That story is called Hannah's Bike Ride, and that day Hannah and her family learned a very important lesson about trusting God. And this morning we are continuing our series on strengthening our grip as we learn how we can strengthen our grip on trusting God. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. Jump down to Hebrews eleven six. It says, And without faith it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Earlier this week, Pastor Jared and Pastor Josh and I had the opportunity to sit down and start talking about what it means to have faith and what it means to have trust. And what we started to realize is that there is a difference between the two terms. Even though very often in the church we use them interchangeably, Faith and trust are very closely related in both the Hebrew and the Greek, but there is a difference. Faith is a noun. It's something I have. It's something I possess. I have faith in God. I have faith in Jesus. In the Greek, faith, the word here, means belief, faith, trust, with an implication that actions based upon that trust may follow. The Greek lexicon says faith is the conviction of the truth of anything and the New Testament of a conviction or belief respecting man's relationship to God and divine things, generally with the included idea of trust and holy fervor, born of faith and joined with it. 
It's belief with the predominant idea of trust or confidence, whether in God or in Christ, springing from faith in the same. So faith is a prerequisite to trust. You begin with faith. You begin by having faith and believing in Jesus. Trust is the next action step. If I trust in something, there is going to be an observable action. Trust is measurable. There's a song that we sing in commotion and have sung here before. Of all the things that I could do for you, and all the things that I could say, nothing is better, Lord, than to simply obey. The many things that I could be for you, the many things that I could pray, Jesus, I'll trust in you, do what you say. In John 14, verse 1, Jesus set the normal response for his believers to follow and obey. Trust in God. Trust also in me. The word is pitho. It's a verb. and means to be persuaded in such a way that the hearer would listen to, obey, yield to, and comply with what was being asked. Again, there's an action required of our trust. Listen to what Jesus said should be the normal trust response of his followers in John 14, 1 through 12. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the, the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Jesus left the definition in John 14 of what normal trust for a Christian should be. It's following him. It's pursuing a life that embraces the kingdom. It's following in his steps to the point that we allow God to participate, to have us participate in greater things with him. It's taking what Jesus did and taking it to a whole new dimension through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Our actions show that we trust in God. Like Hannah obeying her parents and starting to pedal down that hill. Like Nora initially falling back without the assurance that Jesus would catch her. Our actions our obedience to whatever steps or action God calls us to displays our trust in the one whom we follow and serve. So why is it so hard to trust today? Why can I have faith in God and believe enough to be saved from my sins and believe he died on the cross for me, but have such a hard time moving forward in the steps of obedience he's called me to? 
We see today that the news is full of scandals and different promises being broken left and right day after day. The news is full of different calamities and different things that are happening all throughout the world. But often the battle with trust is extremely personal. Perhaps it's due to fear over a medical diagnosis. The doctors are grim. And we may know what God's word says in, Mark's, in I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 6 where he says, Don't worry, but in everything pray. And if it doesn't belong in heaven, that's what the Lord's prayer says, Your kingdom come, your will be done. If it doesn't belong in heaven, it doesn't belong on earth. So we know that illness should not be on earth because there's no illness in heaven. So we know this. We know what Isaiah 53 says. We know that it's by Jesus' stripes that we are healed. But sometimes getting it from head knowledge to heart knowledge, really walking it out, really trusting that God has our best at heart is hard to do. Maybe it's due to being hurt in a relationship where trust has dissolved. Maybe we struggle with trust due to worry over a financial crisis. Today, I am not here to say that I have this down. To be honest, I've been on a trust journey with God for at least the past 10 years of my life. And I can trace a lot of it to some moments in 1999. The first, I had, um, I've been raised in the church my entire life. My parents are 10 rows back about, back there. And um, I've been raised with a very strong faith in God. But there's been different circumstances in my life that I believe God has used to make that faith grow even stronger, to challenge me in my faith, and to really question, do I trust him, and will I continue to trust him, no matter the cost, no matter what he calls me to do. In 1999, I had just um, lost trust and lost faith in some people who had made some promises to our youth group. And it was a very, very emotional, sad time for me. And I remember uh, my mom was a pastor back home, and I remember sitting in her church in La Crosse, sitting on our church, sitting along the back wall of the sanctuary, and I had a paper in my hand. They were starting to um, put together a team that was going to be going to Denmark and Sweden, a team of young people, and I remember sitting there with that flyer in my hand saying, God, if you want me to go, you're going to have to make a way, but this is something I really want to do. I need to learn to trust you again as over and over I had felt like I couldn't trust anymore. And God provided the way for me to begin to go to Denmark and Sweden, and he blessed me by putting me with one of the strongest youth pastors in the entire state of Wisconsin. We had a team of 200 people go to Denmark and Sweden, and that was such a trust journey for us. We went over there with the intention that we were going to be doing dramas on the streets in Denmark and Copenhagen. When we got over there, they decided they didn't want 200 crazy youth on their streets. And so they started breaking us up, and they took our teams to various church plants that they had, and we were there sharing our testimony and cleaning and serving and just being servants, doing whatever we could to be a blessing. And I remember one time, um, incidentally, the pastor that I was placed under, his name was also Pastor Steve, I remember sitting at the church in Copenhagen for our devotional time. And I remember, I can't remember exactly what he preached on, but I remember the altar time very clearly. I was sitting partway back in the room, and there were people up at the altar praying, and I had one of our other um, youth workers sitting near me. And I remember God clearly telling me several things that I can guarantee you today I would not be standing here if I had not obeyed and followed what he told me to do, if I had not displayed my trust in him with the actions that I took. The first was that God told me that I needed to lay down my family. 
I needed to let them go. And I'm extremely close with my family. I'm extremely close with both my mom and my dad. I have a younger brother. He's five years younger than me. And I believe that God really had our family come really close together when uh, my brother was diagnosed with cancer when he was a child. God brought us through that. We'd seen the faithful hand of God. But I was so scared to just let go, to just say, okay, I can be away from them and God's going to keep them. God's going to protect them. God's going to have them in his hands. I don't have to be right there with them. I literally stayed in that seat for what felt like two hours. It had to be at least over an hour. And that wasn't the only thing that God had me lay down, though, as I literally wrestled with him and said, God, this is too hard. Once I finally said, okay, God, I give you my family. It's okay, I'll do that. God said, now I want you to lay down your dreams for your future. My parents know that my brother and I played frequently. And often what we would do, our play reflected what we wanted to do when we grew up. For me, I had very strong children's pastors growing up. So my play always reflected that I wanted to be a minister. We were hold, we, we'd set up these elaborate scenes in our room and we'd play them out. And um, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to follow my parents and go to Bible school. However, God said, no, you need to lay that down. You need to lay down your heart for missions. And it was the hardest thing that I could do because I felt completely stripped. God had taken my family and now he was taking my future. And I wrestled with God. But I laid it down. And can I just tell you the release I felt with knowing that at that point of complete surrender, God was the only thing I had. And ultimately, God was the only thing I needed. After I laid down my dreams for my family and my future, God gave them back tenfold. I embraced the dreams. I embraced the call. Obviously, God called me to be a children's pastor. Obviously, God has laid dreams on my heart for being somehow involved with missions. And every day I take step by step trying to be faithful to what God has called me to do. It hasn't been easy. There have been times where fear has loomed and I consider myself taking baby steps in the plans and purposes that God has for my life. So I'm right there with many of you this morning saying, why is it so hard for those of us who call ourselves followers of God to simply be obedient? to simply trust and obey beyond salvation and take the next step that God is asking us to do? Why does what should be the normal Christian experience, the normal Christian experience of following Jesus, where whatever he may say, whatever he may ask us to do, being baptized in the Holy Spirit for the sake of being anointed to minister to others, why does that normal Christian experience elude us? and feel so abnormal, radical even. Well, let's take a look at those for whom trust and obedience should not have been difficult. Those who spent time in the presence of their Lord. Turn with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the, wind, the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? 
He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. This story has parallels in all three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It finds its place early in the life of ministry of Jesus and is where we can begin our journey with the disciples, those who follow Jesus closely, in discovering where we may lose our grip and trust and where we just may find it. In this story, Jesus instructs the disciples to get into a boat and take them to the other side of the lake. Now, this wasn't any ordinary lake. It probably was more like a Lake Superior Great Lake situation at least. And the lake they're actually talking about is the Sea of Galilee. And according to researchers, sudden storms were very common on the Sea of Galilee because of its position. It sits in a deep basin in the valley. And on one side, there's high mountains and high peaks. On the other side, there's mountains, but there are also gorges in between the mountains. In um, where, where I'm from, we actually call them coolies. And the wind would pick up through those gorges and sweep across the waters in such a way where it would pick up the water and create the storm that we're talking about. Now, this kind of storm that we're talking about, according to the original Greek text, is in fact a hurricane. When we talk about the squall, it's a hurricane with gale force winds. It's a big deal in that time. And the boat was in imminent danger and was being filled with water when the disciples ran to Jesus in fear. Now, it's important to note that many of the disciples were professional fishermen. So they knew this sea. They knew the situation. They had faced storms like this before. So what was it that made it so different that they ran to Jesus in fear? The threat was extremely imminent. Danger was there. They were being swamped. However, it's interesting to note that these very same men had just seen what Jesus was doing. They had started to learn kingdom principles from Jesus. They heard him begin to speak of his kingdom, a kingdom where they were not to worry, but where they were to pray about everything, where they, where they were to seek God's kingdom first. A kingdom where captives would be freed, a kingdom where the Lord's favor would reign. Peter had seen his mother-in-law healed. The disciples had heard that the centurion's servant was healed with just a word spoken. And yet, there was fear mixed in their cry. Fear is the antithesis of trust. Jesus calmed the storm, proving again that God's kingdom had come, and that he had power over not only nature, but over evil. Something I didn't realize, the sea in ancient Jewish custom was symbolic of chaos and evil. So in this story, Jesus is not only saying, I have power over the winds, I have power over the waves, I have power over nature. He's saying, I have power over all of that and I have power over evil. I have power over the devil. He's establishing his kingdom. So what can we learn from this powerful story? What things can we learn from the disciples and see? The first is to notice that instead of praise at the end of the storm, the disciples' response was more fear and a question. Who is this man? When I was a child, I learned a very important lesson in kids' church that I will never forget. There is a big difference between knowing about someone and truly knowing someone. 
I can know all about the President of the United States of America. But that doesn't mean that I know them. That doesn't mean that I have a relationship with them. Do the facts that I learn measure up with the man that I've met if I ever had that opportunity? Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown put it this way. Faith dispels fear, but only in proportion to its strength. I can have faith in a person, but the more time I spend with that person, the more I will learn whether it is safe or not to trust and follow them. Today, I believe that we may be losing our grip on trust because we face the same situation the disciples did. When faced with a storm, they faced fear, and they doubted the one who had called them. Today, I believe there are many of us, when faced with a storm, we struggle with trusting in the character and goodness of God. But that situation is as old as time itself. It's something that actually came with the beginning and the birth of sin. And um, John Bevere writes it very well in his book, Undercover. He describes the situation found in the garden where the devil comes up, the serpent comes up, and he tempts Eve. And he starts to say how the serpent knew just how to craft his words to begin to work with Eve's mind, to begin to have her question the goodness of God. Listen to what this says. The serpent wanted to lead Eve down a path of reasoning where she would eventually question God's goodness and integrity. Once he accomplished that, it would be all too easy to turn her against his authority. Once she began to question the goodness of God, once she began to feel that God was holding out on her, that God didn't have her best at heart, that he was just a tyrant who wanted her to just obey blindly, then it would be all too easy to convince her to sin, to tempt her. We don't understand that the God whom we serve is faithful. Sometimes we don't understand that storms will come. But it doesn't always mean they are the consequences of our actions. Storms are going to come in our lives. And sometimes they are the consequences of poor choices that we've made. But often they're just the result of the fallen world that we live in. We can't explain why bad things happen to us. But we can know that we serve a God who wants to walk with us through the storm. And the disciples learned this just a short time after their first lesson at sea, with the second lesson at sea. Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, or about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? 
And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Notice the different response from the first time. The first time, the disciples really hadn't spent a lot of time with Jesus. They had seen him do a few things. They had started to hear about the kingdom, and they said, Who is this man? Now time has passed. They've witnessed miracle after miracle. They've spent time getting to know the heart of Jesus. And they come to a decision. The miracle led to worship. And the ultimate revelation, proclamation, and confession of who Jesus was. Truly, this is the Son of God. We can face our storm. We can overcome our fear. We can strengthen our grip on trust by asking God to give us a personal revelation of who he is and who he created us to be in him. Peter had a relationship with Jesus. He didn't want to prove he could be a part of a miracle. He wanted to be closer to his Savior. And yes, Peter messed up a few times when he took his focus off of Jesus and started to focus on the waves. And again, when Jesus was in his trial. But this same Peter was also the one Jesus chose to build his church. He was also the one commissioned to feed his sheep. Peter knew Jesus. He had a deep relationship with him that gave him the strength and courage to stand firm and trust God. And the best way for us to begin to develop that kind of relationship with God is through his word. Beth Moore says in her book, Believing God, when we respond to attacks of doubt, distortion, and deceit with the truth of God's word, the fiery dart is extinguished and the enemy takes another hit. So what does God's word say for us today? What is the truth that God wants to share of who he is and who he created you to be in him? It starts with John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world, for God so loved Dominique, for God so loved Elston and Keith, for God so loved George Capella, for God so loved Lisa Mignon, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's not his heart. But that the world through him might be saved. Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Romans 8, 15 through 17. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. 1 John 4, 16 through 18. 
And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. God drives out fear because God is love. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. In John 10.10, Jesus speaking, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In closing, C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, But God wills our good, and our good is to love him with that responsive love proper to creatures. And to love him, we must know him. And if we know him, we shall in fact fall on our faces. If we do not, that only shows that we are trying, what we are trying to love is not yet God. Though it may be the nearest approximation to which to God, which our thought and fantasy can attain. Yet the call is not only to prostration and awe and worship, it is to a reflection of the divine life, a creaturely participation in the divine attributes which is far beyond our present desires. We are bidden to put on Christ, to become like God. In summary, we are bidden to join God on the journey he has for us, to take the step, to step out of the boat, to trust in his character and his heart towards us is good. Today you may be here and you may be facing a storm in your life and you may be wondering, how do I strengthen my grip on trust? Well, today my statement for you is one that Jesus shared. Cast all your cares upon me for my burden is light. Cast it on to Jesus. He is here for you today. Secondly, you may be here and you may not be facing any storms, but perhaps you're facing different circumstances or perhaps in your quiet time with Jesus, you're hearing that God's calling you to something. He's asking you to embrace something that is so beyond yourself, so abnormal, so radical, that you may be afraid to take that next step. The same Jesus who said, cast all your cares upon me, also said, take up your cross. I couldn't come to the point where I could come to Bethlehem Assembly of God in May of 2006 until I was willing to surrender my life in full. Taking up your cross can mean that different things are going to happen in our lives, but I'm here to say to you this morning to suggest that it means a full and complete and total surrender of your plan, your will, your purposes for your life and surrendering to the life that God wants you to live. And it starts with trusting that his plans for you are good. They are not to harm you. What I didn't tell you that same year, 1999, I not only learned how to trust God in Denmark and Sweden, but I also learned how to trust God when at a youth convention that same year, a person told us. Now, I don't remember if they told us this or if it was my own mind and the fear overtaking my own mind that at least half of us in that room would be martyrs for Christ. That freaked me out at the year of 16 years old. And it's only been very recently 
that I was able to go back to that memory and to really try to think through it and to really ask the Holy Spirit to help heal that memory in my heart. That's why I feel like I've been taking baby steps because I'm afraid of what the future may hold. I'm on the same journey with you, having to learn to trust God, having to learn to take his hand, having to learn to say, God, no matter what the future may hold, I know what Jeremiah 29:11 says. I know that the plans and the purposes you have for me are for my good and not to harm me. It's surrendering. And perhaps you're here and you may say, okay, I can get to that point to surrender, but I need to remember that God is a good God. That's where testimony comes in. Both the testimony of those in your small group. That's why small group and being in fellowship and having accountability partners is so important. It's having those people that we can hear what God is doing in their lives. We can hear about the goodness of God, how God is answering prayers. But then we can also share about what God's doing in our own lives. And one of the most powerful testimony stories I've ever heard actually is from a professor of mine who suggested that we all do this. He told us to take a clear jar, and he called it the manna jar. If you remember the Ark of the Covenant, they kept manna in that ark to remember where they had been, to remember where God had brought them from. Well, in this manna jar, our professors were recommending that every time God answered a prayer, we would take a little symbol that would represent the story of the prayer he answered. Maybe it was finances for a vehicle. Maybe it was finances for school. Maybe it was healing in some way. We would take something that would rec represent whatever prayer it was he answered and we would put it in that jar. And we would put it somewhere prominent. So that if we ever had people who came to our house or if we were ever sitting down, we could remember and tell the story of how God had been faithful in our own lives. It's a powerful way to remember that God is a good God. He's a faithful God. And it's important to remember where we have been for those times when the storms will come. We can remember that God, who has been faithful, will continue to be faithful through it all. And then third, first, cast all your cares upon me. You may be going through a storm. Jesus is here and he wants to walk with you. Second, take up your cross. Do you need to surrender this morning? And third, perhaps God is calling you to step out of the boat. What action step has God been calling you to that you need to strengthen your grip and trust him with? Pastor Henry. Pastor Diana, can you come back one minute? Can we stand to our feet? I was saying in the, the second service, there are six pastors here that are in this church, and all of us are different. All of us present the word in a different way. We like to call Pastor Diana the storyteller because she makes you want to th when you're listening to her it's almost as though she's on the couch and you're on the other side of the couch and she's telling you a story it's just how Jesus did it and so she tells a story that is so simple so profound but yet, but yet you can get it you can get it all of us as pastors from Pastor Steve Pastor Jimmy Pastor Jared Pastor Diana Pastor Josh and myself 
we all have stories to tell and you get to experience that day by day and this morning I've been in all three services and it has just been a marvelous experience marvelous experience and as I said to Pastor Josh in the second service, Pastor Diana, God did not make a mistake when he called you to be a pastor. It's, it's amazing that God did not make a mistake with any of the men and Pastor Diana that called to be pastors. In the second service, Pastor Josh had his mother here. In this service, I see Pastor Diana's parents. And would you come up one minute, mom and dad? Yeah, yeah. Come here, mom. They already knew that God didn't make a mistake when they called her. Pastor Diana's mother is, has been a senior pastor in West Conscien. I know I mess up all these names. That part of the city, well, that part of the world. But the idea is she knows what it means. Her dad has been the rock. She talks about her dad all the time. But the thing I want to say to you this morning is this. The simple message is this. Are you going to trust him? Are you going to put your faith in him? And then when we all put our faith in him, are we going to really trust him? Because he loves you. Enough said. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for the people that have heard the story this morning. It's been peaceful. It's been calm. It's been penetrating. It's been convicting. It's been challenging. It's been moving. And it makes us all think. So thank you for using Pastor Diana this morning to give us a simple truth that we can go home and put into practice if we choose or we can walk away. But if we walk away, it won't be because we didn't hear the message and we didn't hear the truth. We will walk away because we choose to walk away. And for everyone who has missed it and heard the message this morning, we found redemption. We found a way back to a God that so loves us that no matter how many times he, we, we fail him, he's always waiting with open arms to welcome us back. I thank you for Pastor Diana. I thank you for the rich heritage that she comes from. I thank you for dad. I thank you for mom. I thank you, Lord, that you produced between them a marvelous woman of God that will continue to tell the story as long as she lives. And Father, as long as she lives, may she be able to hear you clearly, obey you swiftly, and trust in you ultimately for her very life. So we leave this place this morning resting and trusting in you knowing that you'll never let us walk alone. And Lord, we'll give you all the praise and we'll give you all the glory 
In Jesus' name we pray with thanksgiving. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you. Have a smashing Sunday. And we'll see you guys next week.